0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent conversation on the Talking Leadership Podcast, where we explore toxic leadership.
1: Good day and welcome back to Talking Leadership. This is Eric Perez. Thank you for joining me on the series two of our podcast. And this series is particularly focused on toxic leadership. So by way of introduction, my guest today wears multiple hats. He is an award-winning author. He is an uh, expert in HR innovation and the future of work and is a thought leader in that regard. He is also a professor of organizational leadership and is an academic director at the Center for Social Impact. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jonathan Westover. How are you, Jonathan?
0: I'm well. Thank you so much for the
1: invitation. I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you for joining us. Look, you you wear a lot of different hats here. So this is going to be a particularly interesting conversation for me in that this topic area is not one that I claim expertise in, but I have had uh, a run-in with a toxic leader. And when we went out and notified those that are following the podcast and and the world that we were going to do this, the level of interest that came back was particularly telling. So I'm very much looking forward to your views on this, Jonathan. So let's get started where we need to by defining the topic. So from your travels, your expertise, how do you define toxic leadership?
0: Toxic leadership is a big deal and so many organizations deal with it, and most not particularly well. So a toxic leader is anyone who basically makes an unsafe work environment. And there's a lot of ways that you can do that. Uh, It can be physically unsafe, but it can also be emotionally and psychologically unsafe. So if I work in an environment where I have a jerk boss who's yelling, who's uh, who, who's fostering discord amongst the team, who is coming after me, or at least I feel like he's come, he or she is coming after me, you know, that starts to get into the realm of toxic leadership. Uh, certainly it gets into the realm of, of a jerk boss or as some research talks about, the total cost of assholes, you know, the asshole boss. And so, sorry for the language, but, but it's, there's research on this and it actually quantifies the cost to organizations for having bosses like that that basically in and of themselves, they are able to completely undermine the effectiveness and the collaboration and the innovation of their teams just by the way they are, the way they interact with their people. Uh, now, now employees don't expect perfection. I've had many, what I would say were bad bosses or not great bosses. Uh, some of which actually over time learned, they developed, they, they figured things out and they got better and they, they moved into the realm of, you know, a a decent boss, um, Maybe not a, a, a fantastic boss, but at least a decent boss. Toxic leaders, though, that's a little bit different. Usually, you're talking about someone where their ego is driving them. They're, uh, they're not so much concerned about their people, but rather how to make themselves look good, how to, to um, gain more power, more influence. Uh, and often, they'll do it at the expense of those around them. And that is is the context in which I would define that person as a toxic leader, And in those situations, it's really hard to train someone out of being a toxic leader because they often think they know what the best way is. And they think it's by being a bully, by being, you know, by asserting themselves in that kind of an aggressive way. And so they're not very teachable. They're not uh, intellectually humble. And so they're not really... Uh, able to be trained out of it. Usually now there are exceptions and sometimes you'll see someone make a complete transformation, but most of the time when you find yourself in a situation with a toxic leader, you're, you're, if I'm like in the C-suite and I know I have a middle manager, who's a toxic leader, I really need to take a good, long, hard look at that individual. And it, it may be a hard choice, but I probably need to make the decision to let that person go or find some sort of a different role for them where they're not responsible for other people. Otherwise, I'm going to undermine everyone else in their area. And uh, ultimately, it's going to hurt the productivity numbers. It's going to hurt the morale. We're going to lose our best people. uh, And all of that comes into play. Another piece of this, and I, I suppose we'll probably get more into this as we go along, there is so much research that talks about the important role of workplace relationships In driving employee engagement, uh, employee satisfaction, employee productivity, intention to stay at the organization versus uh, leaving for another job. Uh, Relationships generally play a huge, huge role. The relationship with your boss is, is number one. So if you can have a pretty crummy job, a job that you don't really like, you don't enjoy, it's not fulfilling, you don't get paid all that well you don't like your commute, like add on all these things that maybe aren't great about a job, but you have a really awesome boss and you have some good coworkers, people often will, you know, be okay with that and they'll stick around. But you flip that around, you could have great pay, no commute, all the great benefits and perks, but you just have that jerk boss. And usually people in that situation are looking for the first exit point to go. And so an organization then loses their best people. Toxic bosses, certainly bad for business. Uh, jerk bosses, asshole bosses, we want to avoid those whenever possible. And I think for anyone listening, whether you're in a leadership role, worrying about others below you who might be in leadership roles, you know, you you want to be thought- very thoughtful about this. But also each of us individually, we need to think about, like, what things do I do in my behavior, in my interactions with my people that might, you know, maybe I'm not like a complete toxic boss, but maybe there are things I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing, or little things that I could change to help people feel more valued, to be able to, to feel more invested in, for them to feel more empowered and to feel like they have a, a good connection with me as their boss, someone that they have a genuine and authentic relationship with.
1: And that's certainly what I would hope for any team that I lead. Okay, I appreciate that definition. And when you said it, it's not an easy definition, I guess, and it, it is multi-layered. I'm, I'm uh, intrigued with this notion of the asshole boss. And I think everyone has met this person in their travels. But yeah, I, I think... Some, maybe not all, can relate to having jobs where the pay wasn't great and some of the conditions weren't great. But if the people you work with were were good and made you feel like part of the team and you had an exceptional boss or someone that gave a crap about you in the workplace, you tend to stay. And then in the future, you might look for something else, but it won't be because of the leader. Are there any markers you would say definitively define the toxic leader? So are are they typically narcissistic? Like are there elements that really fan out what that toxic leader is?
0: Yeah. So, and you, you mentioned narcissism. I think pretty much all toxic leaders are narcissists, but not all narcissists are toxic leaders, (laughs) if that makes sense. And it's interesting. There's, there's been studies on narcissism in corporate leadership, and it's estimated that upwards of 20% of C-suite executives and CEOs are, are clinical narcissists, but many are very like they're aware enough to understand and self-monitor and understand how they can utilize others around them in a way that will help them be successful. So even though they're narcissists, they know that if they want their business to to succeed and they want to go to the next level, they can only do that if they, you know, are good to their people. And so they actually end up behaving in pretty decent ways. Uh, So, so there are narcissists who aren't toxic leaders, I think pretty much all toxic leaders are narcissists. They're very arrogant. Usually, they're not. Uh, they don't have that intellectual humility. They they think they have it all figured out. And and I get that to a point because you you get promoted and you you get hired into increasing high levels of responsibility in organizations because you've had success in your past you know work experience. And so the higher up you go. I think it's probably natural, unless you have a way to keep yourself in check and not drink the Kool-Aid, it's probably pretty natural for you to to think, yeah, you know, I got it all together. I figured this out. I'm very successful. Everyone else should try to do things like me. And that's a pretty human tendency, I believe. Uh, Toxic leaders just take it to an extra level um, where they kind of take that pride uh, and they just really think that they have it all figured out and... And so they become abusive. They become psychologically, emotionally abusive to people. They become bullies. And, you know, I've been around toxic leaders that were full on, like, I never saw them hit anybody, like strike them with their fist, but, but yelling at them like in their face, yelling at them almost like spit, almost coming out of their mouth, like just harsh individuals that surely is a sign that someone is not right. Like they should not be in that kind of a role. They're too aggressive. Um, They're going to harm the people around them. Uh, But there are are more subtle toxic leaders. And and some people are very passive aggressive, for example. Now, passive aggressiveness can be very toxic. You might say all the the right things. You might smile at someone. You might pat them on the back all while you're stabbing them with your other hand. Right. And so that also can be very toxic. Uh, And ultimately, it comes down to trust. Do you foster an environment where people trust in you as someone they are willing to follow, someone they can be committed and loyal to, and put their time and effort into your, you know, how you create a shared vision for the team? Um, if you can develop that kind of a trust, even if you're more aggressive, even if you're narcissistic, even if you happen to like yell and swear at people, but but they know that you're genuine, you're authentic, you actually do care about them, you're just kind of a passionate person, then then you can still accomplish great things. And I wouldn't say that that's necessarily toxic. Uh, it's it's certainly a different style than I would have, but it's not probably not toxic. But when that trust isn't there, whether it's because of overly aggressive behavior, or it's because it's passive aggressive behavior, where you have a psych- psychologically unsafe environment, that is is real trouble. At that point, people aren't looking out for the team. They're not looking out for how to make the organization succeed they're looking out for number one they're looking it's self-preservation at that point right and when i get to if when i get to the self-preservation mode in my work i'm going to be doing the bare minimum not not making any waves trying to stay below the radar all while probably looking for other work while i'm at work so so ultimately if you see someone who's who's overtly aggressive be careful If you find people that are consistently very passive-aggressive, be careful with that as well, Uh, and ultimately strive for openness, transparency, authenticity, uh, and building trust amongst teams. That's what's going to drive success within organizations, and anything other than that ultimately is going to create, uh, certainly it can create unhealthy environments and work dynamics but at a minimum, it's going to make you not productive. Uh, it's going to make your team not not uh, meet and fulfill their potential.
1: One of the things I, I have to say here is that unfortunately, when you're looking for jobs, you are often not interviewed by the person that's going to ultimately be your boss. You can only find that out once you're in the job, which is part and parcel of the recruitment process. Unfortunately, I've interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs versus leaders that aren't in the entrepreneurial space. Do you find potentially more toxic leadership in the entrepreneurial space or in the CEOs and and leaders of uh, organizations where you're working for someone as opposed to building your own business?
0: It's a really good question. And I can't tell you for sure from a research perspective, because I've I've never specifically looked at that question in the literature. I I don't know if other researchers have as well. My own experience in working with organizations as a consultant and in doing you know, employee engagement, uh, research and, and those sorts of things across organizations of different sizes, including entrepreneurs. My instinct is that it, it really can happen anywhere, that you can have toxic leaders from the CEO all the way down to like the lowest level supervisor that supervises like two people, people who just get a little bit too caught up in themselves, a little bit too caught up with the power. Now entrepreneurs That's a unique thing because they have a drive, they have a passion, and they need that drive and that passion in order to find success with their venture, with their endeavor. Um, The vast majority of entrepreneurs don't really have any sort of a background, expertise or experience in leadership per se, or in people management issues. And so it's very easy for them to inadvertently find themselves perpetuating really bad habits, um, they tend to lead the way they've been led. And so if they were led in a way that was not particularly healthy, uh, they they just replicate what they experience and they think that's that's what leadership is. And so then they just do it again and they perpetuate it onto the next generation to their people, to their employees. Um, and so there are, ta- I believe there are many novice and inexperienced leaders at all levels uh, who find themselves in a leadership role without a lot of expertise or experience. And because they're they're just trying to, they don't know what to do so they're just trying to replicate what they saw other people do that they inadvertently have toxic behaviors even though they, they in, in of of themselves aren't necessarily toxic people does that make sense so over time they can learn how to to get past those behaviors and to, to have shifts um, and and that's where the real poss- the real potential is for training and development of people you know who may not have the you know the raw, leadership capacities or capabilities, they can learn some of those things and they can unlearn some of those negative behaviors. Uh, But ultimately, I I really do think toxic leaders can come in all sizes, shapes, and forms at all different types of organizations, different levels. And because entrepreneurs often just don't have that background or that training, that, that expertise, even if they are actually just really great people, they, they could still perpetuate some really toxic tendencies.
1: That's an interesting distinction. And you know, from my perspective, I'm, I'm interested as a, a very, very early career researcher, if there are any differences between entrepreneurs and, and leaders that are working for organizations, be they for profit or uh, not for profit, and the What you've just brought up there that you can get toxic leadership at any level in the organisation is well worth noting. I guess the addition to that is you've almost defined something there, the accidental toxic leader, where if you're demonstrating uh, toxic behaviours, that that can, um, in some senses, lead to bad things. But if you haven't been trained in formal leadership, then like you said, I, I like getting into bad habits. If you can train someone out of that to identify those things and you can avoid the, the bullets that come with toxic leadership. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. It does go the other way too. I just don't think that's as common
0: because... and explore those ordinary everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. We, we all, I, I bet every single person listening to this could probably off the top of their head, think of a handful of really bad bosses that they've had in the past. Poor leadership, I think, is more common than good leadership. And because that's the case, you know, I think when you have people who don't know what they're doing, and they're just trying to figure it out. And so they replicate what other people did before them, and they perpetuate bad habits the opposite, it it goes the other way too. It's just not as common. Like you'll have people who have no formal training, but they were lucky enough to have as a mentor, you know, maybe someone that they uh, reported to who's just an awesome leader. And they were just able to observe really great leadership style, leadership habits, communication approaches, and that sort of thing. And then they can perpetuate that too. The reason why I'm making this, this point is because it just, it's so important for organizations to invest in the leadership development of their people, not just for right now, but for the long term of the organization. Because what you invest today will not only pay dividends for now, in the next six months, the next year, the next five years, but literally you could have generations of different rounds of leaders where people are promoted from within the company and they find themselves in new roles. You could have literally decades and generations of of good or bad leadership that comes from what you're choosing to do today in terms of your leadership development programs
1: it's it's funny with a toxic or bad leader but let's go even with toxic leaders that these are the people that often provide templates for how to be a better leader so if you if you want to be a better leader you think back to the things that were not appreciated when you were on the come up then you can actually not replicate those behaviors yourself and i'm a believer that i've learned a lot more from the bad leaders that i've met in my travels than the good ones because you're remember those that have done you a wrong at some point but not necessarily all those good leaders that you've met that have done right by you and I think what what stands out with a good leader is you remember that personal interaction what you remember with a bad leader is how they've potentially uh, denigrated your work and sort of attack you on that level at, at least and this is only my perspective on things which segues nicely into the next topic area Jonathan about the psychological impacts of toxic leaders on employees. What what are they in your estimation and are they significant or not significant? Well, I think they can definitely be very significant. Toxic
0: leadership is often synonymous with bullying behaviors in the workplace. So bully bosses and asshole bosses. And we, we spend the majority of our waking life at war. Uh, most of us do, right? And so let's just assume for a second, which, and let me say, this is not a safe assumption, but let me, let's just take as an assumption for a moment that every single employee in our organization has an amazing home life, like everything outside of work is perfect. They have no stresses, no anxieties, no money problems. Everything's fine with their families, their their, uh, partner, their children, if they have them, pets, whatever, like there's no problems outside of work. Okay. Let's assume that for a second, even though that's nonsense and we all know it. it, even if that's the case. Now we're spending the majority, the vast majority for most of us of our waking hours at work Okay, so no matter how good that other home lifetime is, if the workplace is toxic, if it's if it's unsafe, then it will have traumatic impacts on the psychological health of people, literally to the point where it can cause PTSD. There's been research on this that has shown bully bosses um, can actually psychologically damage someone to the extent like, you know, we talk about PTSD for people who've served in the armed forces. If you are witnessing day in and day out, hour after hour, repeatedly for years, toxic bullying behaviors, it can really stick with you. So to that extent, like, yeah, we need to be careful. We certainly don't want any of that kind of abusive type of behavior that can have that kind of negative psychological impact on people. And that's kind of the extreme end of the the spectrum. But even if we don't go as extreme, it, it certainly derails engagement, satisfaction, and people just don't feel happy at work. And when you don't feel happy and engaged at work, you tend to do the bare minimum. You're not as productive. You're certainly not innovative. And particularly in a toxic environment, there's usually very little, if any, innovation, because the moment, in order to innovate, you have to try and you often fail. Most innovative organizations, you know, you'll you'll have 10 failures for every one success And if it's toxic environment, everyone's scared to death of being yelled at. They're scared to death of being made an example of. And so they're not going to stick their necks out and they're not going to try new, new, innovative, challenging things. They're going to stick to the status quo. They're going to do kind of the safe thing. And that is the death nail For any organization that wants to be innovative. So, so even if we don't get to the point of psychological trauma and unhealth for individual employees, the very first thing you'll see, even in moderately psychologically unsafe and toxic environments, is that people will just stop innovating, they'll they'll stop really pushing the envelope, and they're just going to show up, they're going to punch in, punch out, do their time and then try to get out of there as fast as possible. And they're probably going to be looking for the next job as well. Along with that, if I'm really worried about, the types of responses my boss is going to give in performance reviews, in just the daily feedback sessions, or even just casually, as I'm walking down the hall, or they walk by my office or whatever, if that's constantly what I'm worried about, how productive am I, am I going to be in my daily work? Even if I am a really driven person, let's just say that, you know, things are good at home. And I I, I have the attitude that I can, it's things aren't great at work, but I can persevere, I can, I can push through it, I'm going to just give it, everything I've got because I'm invested in my own development and I want to launch myself into my next stage of my career. There are people who are very resilient and they will do that uh, even in very toxic environments. But they, the research shows they too, even though they're ambitious and they're, they're committed and they're putting all the energy in, even that they aren't able to maintain that over a long period of time because they just spend too much mental bandwidth on the fear elements and concern and and just managing the politics of the workspace rather than focusing on the work that has to be done. So if if we're expending 50% of all of our energy to inner office politics and worrying about your jerk boss, of course, you're not going to be as innovative. Of course, you're not going to be as productive, and you still may be quite a productive person. But the opportunity cost of the lost productivity, of the lost innovation, is is also what really hurts the organization.
1: What's the worst psychological impact outside of PTSD? And I'm not saying that that's not an impact. In fact, I was quite taken aback when you said you can end up with post traumatic stress disorder from being in a workplace. I mean, that you know, there's no equivalent to a battlefield, but I guess the consistent seeing consistent bad behavior. Over a certain amount of time could lead to that. Is that the worst kind of psychological impact for someone that is dealing with a toxic leader and/or workplace? I suppose the, the worst impact would be
0: suicidality, or you know the the term going postal, right? So now there's there's often on other underlying mental health challenges for individuals, you know, who who end up experiencing that. But when we talk about workplace violence and, you know, someone quote unquote going postal and coming back into the workplace and and shooting it up, for example, now you're in Brisbane, right? Yes, I am. I'm not, I'm not aware of Australian gun laws. Most of the world has reasonable gun laws. Unlike the U S people show up
1: to the workplace with guns and they shoot everyone up, which is a horrible thought, right? When you say, and, and I think I've got this right. When you say going postal, was that because of an incident that happened with a postal worker that went into his workplace and shot the place up because there, he was just either mentally unstable or had been the recipient of abuse at work. Is that the, the background to that, that term? Cause I've, yeah. I've heard it a lot before only because I watched, too much TV, but for those listening that don't know, <laughs> could you explain a little bit what going postal means?
0: Yeah, the, the phrase comes from an original incident that happened. Oh my goodness, years ago, decades ago. But yeah, there was a, there was an individual uh, uh, who worked at a U.S. based post office who you know obviously had some underlying mental health issues, but also had been treated poorly at work, and finally just snapped. And so they they go in and they shoot everyone up, and and so the term going postal was established then. But it's certainly since then. I mean, unfortunately, it, it's tragic. But in the U.S., it's, it's rare that you even go a week without hearing about some major public shooting somewhere. It's horrible. And so no, certainly those don't all happen in the workplace. But when you talk about like the extreme kind of negative outcomes of toxicity in the workplace, bad behaviors, treating people, you know, being a bully and not treating people with dignity and respect. I mean, on the extreme end of it. Yeah, you absolutely open the door to things like workplace violence even you know to the to the point of like going postal and and people just just losing it because they've been putting up with stuff over time uh, there's a really good uh, Michael Douglas film that came out in I think the early 90s called Falling Down you may remember which is a perfect example a guy that otherwise is not mentally unhealthy and he just like is worn down, beaten down, and he just ends up losing it because just everything in his life was so bad. So certainly we don't want to get anyone to that point. And certainly we don't want suicidal thoughts or, or someone, you know, feeling like they're so hopeless, things are so bad at work and their boss and their career, their career prospects are so bad that they, they end up taking their own life that, you know, we don't, we want to avoid any of that kind of stuff, but even not getting anywhere close to that extreme, the, the nagging day-to-day kind of persistent impact of that kind of an environment is is very negative, and and certainly, I mean, anyone listening, I'm sure you can think about that past work experiences, work environments that were pretty positive, and you can think of those that were pretty negative. And the ones that were pretty negative, even if we don't say they're ne- necessarily toxic, not to that level, but they're still pretty negative. I mean, just remember how you felt. Remember how motivated you were to get out of bed in the morning and to go to work, how just drained you were at work and how much, how just sapped of meaning and purpose you were (laughs) in your life because of how bad work was. Um, That's, those aren't small things. When we're talking about fulfillment, meaning, and purpose, we all need that in order to thrive as human beings. And so when that's not happening in in a place where we spend the vast majority of our waking hours, there's going to be a lot of other impacts not just for the organization but for the individuals who will be negatively impacted and their families.
1: Thank you for that. Let me go off track just a little bit but still related to the topic and this is around employees in the workplace and I'm a big believer in you you Accept the standard from which you're prepared to walk by, and one thing that has struck me is in a in a toxic work environment with a toxic leader, at times your own colleagues that that might be standing around you will not intervene in issues where you might be being yelled at or being physically threatened by a toxic leader. Can you explain the behaviour as to why people won't intervene? Why is it that there is a uh, maybe it's a human inclination to just not get involved, even though it's in your workplace? Is there some reason Reason for that? Or, is, or am I seeing something that's not there?
0: No, you're absolutely right. And the, it's actually much more common for people to not intervene. So there's a, a couple of different things going on from a psychological and sociological standpoint. So one is called the bystander effect, that well-meaning, good individuals who might otherwise be inclined to intervene, when they're in a place where there's lots of people around and everyone's observing this negative thing happening, our tendency as humans is to look around and we're like, Oh, well, it's this, this is, isn't really my deal. Someone else will deal with it. Right. Or this there's three other people in the office observing this thing. So they'll, they'll report it to HR or they'll confront the, the boss or, or whatever. So the bystander effect, you know, it effectively reduces the amount of intervention that we tend to see. And there's lots of studies about this in all sorts of different contexts. Um, not just in the workplace but it certainly happens in the workplace as well. I think the other factor here is just our personal, you know, self-preservation and survival in the workplace. And if we're in a toxic environment or bullying environment and there's not psychological safety, the natural byproduct of that is that I will feel very most people will feel very hesitant to speak up when they observe a problem, an abuse or whatever. Because what's going to happen? If if you observe somebody else being abused um, and then I speak up about it, what's most likely going to happen to me as I do that? I'm also going to be abused. I'm going to be retaliated against. I may be fired or certainly I could end up having to deal with a bunch of fallout from trying to intervene. And so a lot of, you know, otherwise good people will just completely ignore uh, and try to look the other way because it's self-preservation. They don't want to confront it because they don't. They know that that could potentially hurt them. I've I've seen that over and over and over again in organizations. Not judging the individuals, like otherwise amazing people that I would say they're they're awesome individuals. They're very moral, ethical people. Yet they don't act. Why don't they act? You know, for those reasons uh, that we just said. So it's it's just another reason why we have to really prioritize psychological safety. Um, speak up culture. We, We need to incentivize people speaking up, speaking out, even when it challenges and particularly when it challenges authority, the status quo and shines a light on unhealthy behaviors and abusive behaviors within the workplace. If we don't do that, even if it's not a toxic environment, but just the natural messiness of human interactions and bad things that can happen within organizations. If we don't foster that kind of a speak up environment, then most things will get brushed under the rug. The other piece in terms of the psychology of it all is that if I'm in a workplace, it comes back, it connects with self-preservation. But if I'm in a workplace, my whole livelihood relies on my ability to stay in this job, to earn an income, get my benefits, provide for my family, send my kids to college, whatever, right? And so there's cognitive biases that also influence how we perceive what we see. I may observe an abuse, but acknowledging the abuse will lead to guilt or shame on my part if I don't act. It could lead to retaliation if I do act. And so psychologically, I'm much more inclined to come up with some different interpretation of what I just observed. Like that person was asking for it. That person deserved it. Or the boss was just having a bad day. They're not normally like that. Or just flat out uh, ignoring it. Or you know, thinking back to, oh, they they shouldn't have done that. But here's ten other good things that they've done. So I'm going to look past it. Uh, we see the same thing in abusive relationships at home and de- domestic violence cases. Like people will put up psychologically. They'll put up with a lot of dissonance between you know what they see and how they process it in order to make it fit within their personal narrative and what's going to help them continue safe, you know, their own safe um, self-preservation.
1: Is there any evidence or any any uh, experiences that you've witnessed that over time as a person gets older or they get more experienced in a role that they're more prepared to be the person that speaks up or does age and experience really doesn't matter? It's a good question. I'm not sure that age and experience necessarily matters,
0: but if you are more experienced within the organization, if you've been around longer, there's a potential that you've built up more social and political capital within the organization, right? You, you've been around the block, you know the relationships, you built relationships with people uh, around the organization. And because of that, you, you very well might be willing more willing, say than the average person or the person who just got hired a month ago, you know, to actually speak up to challenge something that you see as unjust or inequitable within the workplace. So like I'm a professor in academia, you go through different stages, right? And once you get tenure, that that gives you a certain level of safety that you can feel like, and that's kind of the point of tenure, right? Is that it can provide more safety so that you can speak up about things that you want. you're not self-censoring as much. You can, you can, pursue the research you want. You can pursue the the academic leadership that you want, those sorts of things without so much concern, right? And so because that mechanism of tenure is there, it makes people a little bit more likely to speak up once they've achieved tenure. Um, I recently achieved full professor. So in the U.S. system, you're hired as an assistant professor. When you get tenure, you become an associate professor. And then essentially you do it again over another six years. And if you get to the point where you're then promoted to full professor, At that point, there's not a whole lot of people who get to that point. And so I've I've achieved that stature. I have reputation across campus. I'm someone that people see as a person of integrity that they can trust. I have a lot of political and social capital on campus that, you know, the average person may not have. And so at that point, yeah, I, I feel like personally at my university, I feel like almost no hesitation to speak up against anything that I see. Whereas 10 years ago, absolutely, it went through my mind, oh, is this a battle I'm willing to Fight right now, and what can this do to me in the future? Now, academia is such a unique thing, though it's different than most organizations and most companies don't have anything even remotely close to the whole tenure system. And so, so it's true that you build up that you build up the social and political capital over time, and that definitely can influence it. But most organizations don't have those types of protective employment mechanisms where your job is more safe. You know, as you move. Uh, further along your career.
1: Yeah, definitely agree with that. I I think when you're talking about the world of academia and you've just pointed it out then, a lot of people aren't going to stay in jobs for 12, 14, 15 years to get to those positions. And I have to say, I've had multiple careers in my short life uh, and I know others that have done the same. There's a few, maybe throwbacks, not the right word, but definitely people in the the circles that I run that have been in certain organizations for at least a decade. And it's just crazy to me that you would stay there for that long. But I, I can understand that, in, definitely in the world of academia it's a little different and yeah it just goes to show that the, the human animal is is flawed on many different levels and I think we it's um, everything you've talked about is counterintuitive in that you have to train people to fight a path of least resistance so to do nothing and to justify it is a lot easier than actually doing something and wearing the consequences for doing it now I, I fully understand me being able to say this now on a podcast is very simple and it's a, a risk free environment for me to say it I'm probably talking now more at the most optimal best human level to try and say something and and get involved and help the person out but i'm not the person in the workplace it's not potentially my career on the line so it's easy to say it's a lot harder to do so I, i fully understand that that was dr jonathan westover i'd like to thank him for his time and insights